Pastor John here. Thanks for joining us again. It's Palm Sunday today, so we're going to take a short break from our current series, Lessons for Today from the OT, and look at the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This describes what Bible scholars call the triumphal entry, Jesus entering Jerusalem to observe the Passover. This short passage is full of surprises and symbolism. Our theme for the message today is Jesus, King of Kings. Really? We all know this is true, but is it really true to that gigantic crowd in Jerusalem in the first century? And is it really true for you and me today? Let's find out as we join our service. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 12, verses 12 through 20, 12 through 19. I've got to be honest with you on something. I just sat through Veritas service, and uh, Pastor Zach just preached on the same passage. I thought, I better listen carefully so I can take notes and change my sermon. Uh, But he did a fantastic job, and I've I've got a little bit of a different take on it, uh, but it's certainly enjoyable to hear somebody so sold out for the Word of God and so passionate about presenting it. Um, If you get a chance, you should listen to his sermon as well. I think there's plenty to be learned from both of them. So when I first got saved, we were in this little church in, in Franconia, and we got a brand new pastor, and I was talking to him. I was all excited. He asked me who Jesus was, and I had learned the lingo. I said, oh, he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he said, so, is he your king? And I said, well, of course. I've been saved for three months. I know all about it. And he said, really? That's our truth for today. Matter of fact, that, that's, that's the, the title for our sermon today. King of Kings. We all know that to be true, amen? But is he your king? Is he really king of kings? So we're going to look at this, this triumphal entry here. And we're going to see three groups of people and how they react to Jesus Christ. We're going to see the reaction of the crowd around him in verses 12 through 15. We'll see the reaction of the disciples in verses 16. And we'll see the reaction of the Pharisees in 17 through 19. So let me give you the context. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. It's spectacular. Just had dinner at Lazarus' house in Bethany. Mary anointed him with some perfume. And if you're familiar with the passage, you know that Judas went and said, gee, this is a waste of money. We could have been helping the poor. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's anointed me for burial. It's just a preview of what's to come. And, you know, the folks around Jesus aren't getting all this at this point. They're they're not fully understanding. But meanwhile, the religious leaders, we saw this in Luke, are plotting how to kill Jesus. He's become a threat to them. He's, he's, you know, he's worried. The, the, the Pharisees are worried that uh, the crowd is going to call Jesus their king. And that that's going to cause problems with Caesar. And so they, 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 they want to get out of him. They want to get rid of him. And, and so people are coming as they're plotting to kill him. People are coming from all over. Uh, some people think there might have been a million and a half to two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're coming uh, not just for the Passover, but now they're here to see Jesus and they're here to see Lazarus, the guy that was raised from the dead. So Je- Jesus leaves Bethany with all of his followers, 
Presumably on Sunday of Passion Week, I'm not going to bore you with my theory that it's Palm Monday. You can ask me about it later. So Jesus leaves Bethany and approaches Jerusalem, and he's going to celebrate the Passover and what only he knows is, will be his last time while he's here on earth. This would be the 10th of Nisan, um, roughly corresponds to April for us. Uh, it, it's, and, and it's significant. The date is significant because the 10th of Nisan is the date that the Jews would traditionally pick the Paschal lamb, the lamb that would be sacrificed four days later on the 14th. Now, keep in mind, and, and, and in order to understand what's going on here, we need to understand what Passover is all about. It's a celebration of the time when God delivered his people from Egypt. And that's what would be on the minds of the crowds, and remembering how God brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of bondage, brought them out of slavery, brought them out of the oppression of the Egyptian government, Pharaoh. And, and he had done the same several times since then. It's really significant for us to understand that each time that the Jewish people fall under oppression, it's because of their turning away from God. It's not just because there are mean people in the world, but it's because they've turned their back on God and started worshiping other gods. They'd fall under oppression, and then they'd find themselves in a pickle, and they would, they would call out to God, and God would save them. So God had saved them several times. So the, the Hebrews, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, are focused on being delivered. They know that God's going to do this one day. It's all, they see all the promises, and this Jesus... This man who just raised somebody from the dead just may be the one who's going to deliver him. So what's going to happen when he shows up in Jerusalem? Let's take a look at the reaction of the crowd, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Again, maybe two and a half million people. Jerusalem is just busting at the seams with, with people. And word had spread about Lazarus. And here comes Jesus. He's coming down the side of the Mount of Olives. Here's what the Mount of Olives looks like. And, you know, that's taken from the Temple Mount. There's a path that he follows, and the path is still there. The red line shows the path. Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives. Stops about a third of the way down. Right in the middle, almost. And, and he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. Why does he weep over Jerusalem? Because they're going to miss the time of their visitation. Now, keep that in mind as we go through this, this incredible celebration. He comes through the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's probably where half of the crowd meets him. That whole walk would take somewhere around 20 minutes or so. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, <laughs> these palm branches are pretty significant because it tells us what's on the minds of the crowd. This is the only time in Scripture we see them used this way. They're mentioned in Leviticus 23 uh, in relation to the Feast of Tabernacles, but they're not used in this manner. They've got palm trees, they're waving them, they're shouting and everything. So in order to understand that, we need to understand a little bit about Jewish history that maybe isn't in the Bible. So the Jews in the first century, these palm branches are a reminder of a few things that's happened to them in their walk with the Lord. We see these in extra-biblical texts. Now, these texts are not authoritative, but they are informative. They can, 
They can help us understand what's going on in the culture of the first century. Date palms were everywhere. You couldn't throw a stone without hitting one. Jewish tradition teaches that, that Levi used palms as a symbol of ruling authority. So they were a symbol of power and authority. During both major wars with the Romans in their recent history, the coins of Israel were stamped with palm branches, with palm leaves. They were a symbol of pride for Israel. In the second century BC, the Jews were being oppressed. They were under the strict control of the Seleucid Empire. Now, what is the Seleucid Empire? It's kind of a fragmented but more powerful Greek empire. So in the second century, they're under the control of the Greeks. And in 167 BC, the Maccabees, a family led by Judas Maccabee, took back Jerusalem, took back a lot of Israel, and to celebrate that victory, the Jews came out and waved palm branches in front of Judas Maccabee as he entered Jerusalem. Waving palm branches in front of the victors of, over those who would oppress them. So by the first century A.D., the time during which Jesus enters Jerusalem, these palm branches have become a symbol of Jewish nationalism, brothers and sisters. Jewish nationalism. They represent deliverance from military, political bondage. They, they represent victory over their enemies. Now, that may be appropriate, okay? But once we understand what the palm trees mean, we understand exactly what the crowd is doing. They're, they're celebrating a conqueror. They're excited over the next one who's going to deliver them from their oppressors. Here comes Jesus. He's going to take care of these Romans. He's going to kick them out of here, and we're going to have victory, and we're finally going to be free. See, with the Maccabees, it was deliverance from the Greeks. With Jesus, with Jesus, it's deliverance over the Romans. So it's amazing. Date palms were everywhere. They're, they're putting them in front of Jesus, and they're waiting for him to vanquish the Romans. And they're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The proclamation is Hosanna. And it, it means save us, we pray. Save us now. And there's urgency to their shouting. This is the big moment. They're quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is part of a, a five-part uh, uh, hymn of psalms that they would sing during their festivals. They would do it particularly during Passover. But we have to understand the context of Psalm 118 also, as well because they sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God has sent this person. Psalm 18, part of the Hallel, sung at the feasts and festivals commemorating deliverance from Egypt. And it is indeed praise, it is indeed worship, but understand the context of Psalm 118 is a praise to God for saving Israel from the nations that surround them. Now, by now, we ought to notice that there's a theme to this parade. There's something going on here. The crowd's saying, literally, let me give the JK uh, interpretation of what's going on here. He's saying, God has sent this man to save us. This is our moment. Here he comes. This man is our king. 
He's our Savior. The question is, do they mean it? Do they mean that he's their king? Will he still be king if he's come for some other reason? And the irony in the situation is that they're absolutely correct. They've got it. He has come to save them. And he is their king. But he may not quite be the king that they're expecting. And he gives them a hint by what he does next. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We've talked about this before. There's that pesky, problematic donkey again. A signal that the king has come in peace not war. The scriptures say that it would come in peace. They're, they're quoting Zechariah 9.9 Zachariah here. But Zechariah 9.9 describes a humble king, a king who brings not victory, not victory over the enemies, not victory over other countries and politics and so on and so forth, but a king who brings righteousness. The victory he brings is over unrighteousness he may not be here for the Romans so we see that the crowd's reaction is excitement praise there's high expectations here Jesus has come to free him from Roman oppression Roman control Roman taxes but you can hear the murmur what Why is he on a donkey? Shouldn't he be on a horse? I mean, that's what conquering kings came in, a horse. Usually had an army behind him. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's got an army behind him. He's on a donkey. And they're challenged by this, but we're not going to see how greatly they're challenged until the end of Holy Week. This is the beginning of the most significant week in the history of mankind. So, so what do the disciples think about all this? Let's see that, their reaction in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified later, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, John's not trying to tell us that the crowd saw Jesus as their king, but the disciples were confused about everything. The crowd is clearly confused. We're not going to find that out for another couple of days. They call him king, but they will only accept him as king if he does what they want him to do. The disciples are watching all this, and what they're missing is how important this moment is. They're not going to realize how important until later, when Jesus is resurrected. Only then, after he's resurrected and ascends, will they look back and see how vitally important this particular moment is and how all of these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he rode into Jerusalem. They'll understand it later. How often do we find ourselves in a situation where we don't really understand what God was doing until later on? We look back and go, oh my. I went through a rough time with that, but the reason that God put me through a rough time was because here's where he wanted me to be, right here, right now. Sometimes it takes years of spiritual growth, 
Sometimes it takes years of spiritual struggle for us to realize that God is trying to show us something. And if we're careful to consider it, what we find out is God's trying to show us something about ourselves, not about the people around us. Trying to show us something about how to live our lives, teach us something. The disciples aren't being ignorant in this verse, but they do need help in understanding the full implications of everything that's going on. Later on, they'll get that help in the form of the Holy Spirit. They're not the only group watching the proceedings. We've got the Pharisees. Well, let's take a look at their reactions, starting in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now, here we see one crowd. Watch this. There, there, there's some really neat stuff going on in here. We see one crowd, the ones that were with him in Bethany. They're excited. They've seen all this. Large number of people accompany him as he comes down the, the side of the Mount of Olives on his donkey. They're shouting and, and pointing and stopping people, telling them all what they've seen. You could see this happening. Jesus is coming down on a donkey, and the people that were with him at Bethany have seen this teaching. They've seen Lazarus raise up from the dead. Everybody in town knew who he was, and they're stopping people. Did you hear what happened? You know who this guy is on the donkey? That's Jesus Christ. I just saw somebody raised from the dead. We just had dinner with him over on the other side of the mountain. Boy, wait till you see what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. They meet up with another crowd. Coming out of the city, two crowds, verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard, heard he had done this sign. So we got the crowd coming with him, the crowd coming out of the city because word is spreading. And we see the motivation of the second crowd. They know that he's a miracle worker. They know that he might be the Messiah. That may just be true. And if so, if he's really sent from God, then he has the power and the authority to do what they want him to do. The two crowds come together. And it's a spectacular display of praise and worship. The first crowd is there because of what he's done. The second crowd is there because of what they hope he will do. And his popularity swells based on what folks hope to gain from him. And oddly enough, the Pharisees see Jesus not as a deliverer, but as a threat. A threat to their welfare. We already know from our time in Luke that they're plotting to kill him. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Says you, we're, we're, we're not getting anywhere. Nothing seems to be working. We've got all these plans. We keep on looking worse and worse. There are people from all over the world here that are following him. The Pharisees' reaction is anger, even hate. Jesus has upended their apple cart. He's already offended their legalism. Oh, that's not the way you're supposed to do things. Don't you know it's Sunday? Don't you know it's Sabbath? Don't you know that we don't do any work on this day? He's already challenged their authority. He's already held them to the very scriptures that they're holding other people to. And they don't like it. They don't like any of it. Ultimately, their reaction 
is to reject him as king. So we've seen these three reactions. We've seen the reaction of the crowd. They think, watch this, because we've got to be careful how we look at these people. Because this crowd believes that they know their scriptures, don't they? They even quote them. I mean, the whole crowd's singing psalms, quoting Zechariah. But they're trying to make the scriptures fit their expectations of what God's doing. They're trying to mold the Lord into their will for him. They're trying to make him conform into what they think he should be. Wow. (laughs) Do we ever do that? Do we ever read a scripture maybe out of context, that kind of affirms what we've been thinking all along and it encourages us to continue on a path that's not necessarily a good path. They're trying to mold the Lord into their image. They're correct about Jesus coming to deliver them. They got that. But they're wrong about what Jesus has come to deliver them from. For centuries, the Jews have been oppressed. They've had a hard life, a hard walk. One warring nation or another would take control over them, never because they're weak, never because they're unable to fight, but always because they've turned their back on the Lord. They've minimized them. Every deliverance that they've had over their history was an act of grace. God bringing his people back to himself, not because they're worthy, but because he loved them completely and unconditionally. Jesus was going to bring them deliverance Listen carefully, not from the Romans, from themselves. From themselves and those things that they couldn't help but do. They wanted a king, but only on their terms. In a few short days from this parade, from this celebration, he would die abandoned and alone. The king of the universe doing what only the king of the universe could do. Dying in place of his people. Dying in place of you and me. See the reaction of the disciples. They don't understand the full implications of what they see. Not going to understand it until after the resurrection. We get that. We've all experienced times where we don't understand what God's doing until much later. Maybe we needed some time to settle down. Maybe we needed some time to look at the situation a bit more objectively. Or maybe the disciples and us, maybe, maybe they just needed some help. Maybe they needed some help in understanding what God was doing. Isn't that one of the things we see in verse 16? They don't understand until Jesus is glorified, until he's ascended into heaven, and sends what? Who? The Holy Spirit to them. So as they receive the Holy Spirit, they begin to understand what God is doing. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you confess your sins, if you repented and turned back to him, you have that same Holy Spirit in you. He's there to help us. He's there to help us understand what God is doing. We don't always 
We don't always want that help. We're not always willing to slow down and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us through a situation. We frequently react emotionally and forget to stop and pray and, and pray and wait for the Spirit to guide us. We, we have that promise. Don't we have a promise from Jesus Christ? Jesus says in John 14, 26, the Spirit, listen, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And we have, we have the reaction of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, watch this, the Pharisees would rather suffer through the oppression of the Romans rather than change their ways. They would rather enjoy the comfort of, of the, the worldly culture around them. They would rather enjoy the comfort of the world that they're living in than read their scriptures objectively and pursue the holy lives that they're called to pursue. We've said this a thousand times. They are self-righteous. They are worldly. But you know something else? They're stubborn. The Scripture's right there in front of them. And they refuse to accept it. Oh, those Pharisees. Do we dare accept God's Word for what it says? Do we, do we dare examine ourselves instead of examining God? Do we dare look at our hearts rather than the hearts of those around us? To the crowds, Jesus is their king, but only so long as he delivers what they expect him to deliver. To the disciples, he's their king, but only as long as they don't have to risk anything. They don't have the help of the Holy Spirit. And we know that in four short days, they're going to run. Their dreams are going to be disillusioned. They're going to be in fear. The Pharisees, yeah. They call him their king, but only as a joke. The only king they want is one that agrees with them supports them in what they're doing. The crowds and the disciples call him king, but they don't really believe it. Not yet. The Pharisees flat out reject him. And still, this is the amazing thing about all this. Now, now that we understand all the background, now that we understand everything that's going on, I mean, if I were on that donkey, just think about it, what would you do? I would turn around and go, you know what? I don't have to go through this. None of these people appreciate me. This is ridiculous. Look at everybody saying this and this and this. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what he was riding into town for. I mean, you know, they get this hint that he's on the donkey. The next hint they get is when he shows up at the temple. He cleans out the temple instead of joins with them in, in union against the Romans. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. And still he rides into town and he's going to allow these people to crucify him. He's going to allow them to nail him to a cross. Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. Oh, this is hard for us to compute. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, we've seen these three reactions, how do you react to Jesus? What's going on in my heart? Is Jesus your king? Really? Are we going to live in a manner that shows that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords? Or are we only going to do that when he agrees with what we want to do and does what we expect him to do? He's doing everything he's doing right here is totally unexpected. And look what happens. He defies their expectations. He defies their will. He defies their praise and worship and saves the world. It's incredible. Is Jesus your king? Really? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our king, that your son was a conquering king. We thank you for the lesson, Father, that he came to conquer not the people outside of us, but the heart inside of us that would betray you at every step. And we pray, Father, that you would illuminate our lives to that, that we would have a full understanding of what you've done for us, Father, that we might go down on our knees before you in praise and worship, truly calling you our King, submitting ourselves to you, Father, in every area of our lives, that you might pour through us into the people around us whom you love as well, that they might see what salvation looks like, that they might get a taste of grace. And that their hearts would burn for that same salvation and grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next Sunday. It's Pastor John back again. I want to thank you one more time for joining us. If you were blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the like button below. That little thumbs up at the bottom of the video. If you're listening on Sermon Audio... Perhaps you can comment on the sermon or even share the sermon with someone else. Either way, we'd love to have you as subscribers on either site. We'd love to hear from you as well. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Just search for WBFVA. And we're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you would like us to pray for you and what you'd like us to pray for. Let us know if you have any comments. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we'd love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.